Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we've been going through the book of 2 Samuel. So from 2 Samuel chapter 5, all the way up to today into chapter 10, there has been a steady stream of successes in David's life. Success after success after success. And all of these successes have showered David with blessings. And they've made him generous and they've made him victorious. And this is organized in such a way because in chapter 10, there's more of that. There's more of God's favor on David's life. It, it's almost as though he just couldn't do any wrong. He was so successful and his eyes were so on the Lord and he was such a good shepherd to his people. When he surveyed his people, he, he knew that they weren't his people. Those were God's people and he was caring for them. And God blessed him because of that posture in his life. He came from nothing and God just kept showering him with blessings. Over and over and over, victory, victory, victory. Generosity towards David and then David is showing generosity towards his people. And there's more of that in chapter 10, but everything comes to a screeching halt in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now in putting together the preaching schedule of this text that we're gonna be covering, I arranged the two of these together for a reason. I put 2 Samuel 10 and 2 Samuel 11 together because these two chapters, they go together in such a way that what's happening in 10 sets the stage for what's happening in 11. What happens in 11 happens because of the war that's waging in 10. So historically, the two chapters go together because what happens in 10 sets the stage for 11. But there's another reason why I arranged 10 and 11 together. Because 2 Samuel 10 and 2 Samuel 11 have these flavors of 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. All right, I wanna read that to you before we go into 2 Samuel. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example. Now what things? Earlier in this chapter, one through nine, he's describing the things that happened to Moses and the children of Israel. And he's describing that all of that, the Exodus, the coming into the promised land, that entire story, it was written for your instruction. It was written as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, so what Paul is saying is that everything that happened with Moses and the children of Israel was written down for our instructions so that those on who are gonna bear the weight of the ages to come, everybody who would live in the future would be able to look back on the things that happened with those folks and draw understanding and be instructed on the way that God works with his people moving forward. So how are we supposed to get a sense of how God works with his people and how we orient ourselves in the world? We look back at God's word, the things that were written down at the people who came before us. Now Paul's argument to the church in Corinth is based off of Moses and the children of Israel, 
But I would argue that it's not just restricted to Moses and Israel, because we don't just have the book of Exodus. We have the entire Old Testament. I am arguing that everything that's written down in the Old Testament is written down as an example for our instruction. That's why we have it, that's why we study it, that's why we thread the needle to see the connection between the old and the new, because it's all God's story, and these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then Paul says, therefore, why am I telling you this? Why do you need to know that all this stuff was written down for your instruction? Because if anyone thinks that he stands, Take heed lest he fall. That's it. That's the whole enchilada. That's the whole point of what we're going to be talking about today. Paul instructs us through the church in Corinth that all of this stuff was written down, including the history of David, was written down for our instructions. Why? Because if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Paul is warning the church that success, blessing, victory, God's favor on our lives, if we aren't careful, can have a way of blinding us. Good, good things that our Father has given us, if we're not careful, we turn those into idols. Blessings that he pours out on his children, if you're not careful, those blessings become the thing that you're serving and that you're striving after. And they eventually have a way of blinding you and, and choking you out. They have a way of, of cultivating inside of you if you're not careful, if you don't receive them in the right way, cultivating a desire that has an insatiable hunger and it never stops. David had victory after victory after victory and then he fell hard. And Paul's instructions to us is that we should take note lest we fall. So let's get into the story. We're gonna start off with God blessing David with even more victories in 10, and then we're gonna to pivot to the sharp turn in 11. So 2 Samuel chapter 10, start off in verse one. It says this, after this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place, David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the prince of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then you can return. Let's pause there. So the story starts off with generosity. Remember the two themes that I told you that the author is driving home regularly? David is a victorious king and a generous king. 
We're gonna start with God blessing David as a generous king. David's posture, because God has been generous to him, is that he wants to be generous to everybody. He wants to be as kind as he possibly can. And that's how the story starts. There's this guy named Nahash, who was the king of the Ammonites. Now, if you remember from our previous series in 1 Samuel chapter 11, there was this guy named Nahash, same character. He was called the snake. This was right when Saul was about to take his throne as being anointed as king. It was back in 1 Samuel. Nahash went to a town called Jabesh Gilead and told the men of that city, unless you surrender to me, I'm gonna gouge out your left eye of every man in the city. And Saul came to their aid and defeated Nahash, who was the king who's died here in 10, pushed him back to his town, uh, the king of the Ammonites, and not much has been heard from him. But you can imagine, Saul and Nahash, they didn't get along so well. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and David and Nahash, they got along well. Nahash was very kind to David. Well, in the story, we find out that Nahash has now died, and David is going to send an envoy up to his son, who is now king, Hanun, and say, look, I'm sorry to hear that your father passed away. Here's some gifts, we just wanna offer some um, consoling to you, I wanna show some respect. The problem is, is that Hanun was just like his dad. Hanun had the same streak of humiliation that his dad had. He liked making people feel little. And so when this envoy came, he got advice from his wise men. It was bad advice. And Hanun acted rash. He shaved the half of the beard of all the men who came. Just from here, over. Real two-faced situation, you know, from Batman, just half the beard, just gone. Which was utter humiliation because in Jewish culture, beards were a sign of honor. Why? Because young men don't get beards. You gotta earn it. You gotta grow it. It takes some time. And so in a culture like this, if you've got a beard, it communicates honor and to shave half of it was to make them look like a clown. But it went beyond that. He cut their robes that they were wearing at their waist, exposing everything from the bottom down, and they weren't wearing underwear. So he shamed this entire envoy and sent them out of his city, half shaven, no clothes from the bottom down, and David hears of it. And what is David's response? More kindness. He extends kindness to these men and tell, he tells them, I want you to go hide out in Jericho until your beards grow back and we'll bring you some new clothes. Now, I want you to remember 1 Samuel 8.15. Or 2 Samuel 8.15. The idea that David, yeah, 2 Samuel 8.15. David reigned over all Israel and administer justice and equity to all his people. The author wants you to remember that as we move forward. David was the kind of king who operated in justice and equity. In, in this kingdom, you do the right thing. And if somebody doesn't do the right thing, then you're gonna make it right. So David's generosity is not just him being generous out of the kindness of his own, own heart. This 
also goes along with his justice and equity with the way that the kingdom ruled. And it's giving us this clear picture of a generous king. This kind of king who has, has compassion on his own men because of the, the shame that they have. And the whole story starts with the compassion that he had on this enemy, the Ammonites. They're not Israelites. They're a foreign nation. And David is just trying to be generous. Now, we've seen the picture of the generous king and how God blesses the generous King David, but now we're about to see the other side, this other theme we've been talking about the last couple weeks. The victorious warrior king, the man who goes out to war and God is on his side and the man doesn't lose, no matter how big the army is, God is with him. So let's go pick up in verse six. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth, Ra'ob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, the king of Ma'ak with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahob, and the men of Tob and Makkah, were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you'll come over and help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come over and help you. But brother, be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for our cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, I have that underlined. This isn't the point of the sermon. I don't want to go off on a tangent on this, but I just want you to ruminate over that. That this man, Job, in the midst of battle, in the midst of all the turmoil, when enemies are all around him, hears how he chooses to look at that situation. May the Lord do what seems good to him. It's a fascinating way to pray. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadazer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and he crossed the Jordan and came to Helam and the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him and the Syrians, they fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. Wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazer, saw that he had been defeated by Israel. He made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's pause there. Now, 
Lots of battles, lots of locations. Let's break down what just happened in these verses by looking at a map and getting a sense on where these people are. So we're gonna zoom in here on the Middle East. This encompasses the area currently of Israel, Syria, and a little bit of Lebanon. Now, and probably a little bit of Jordan. So currently, if you look at a map today, Egypt is down here, Israel is here in this slice of land. Lebanon is up here, Syria is up here, Jordan is down here. A lot of these places are named similar. Some of these locations are still here. You can go today. But here's how this whole thing started. After the men were sent away in shame, the Ammonites, their capital city was called Rabbah, or Rabbah. They were about to be overtaken by David because they had just humiliated some of his men. So on their way back to Jericho, which is just to the east of Jerusalem, the king of Ammon over here, he hires Syrian mercenaries from Zobah, Bethraob, Maaka, and Tob. These four regions up here, Syrian regions. These four regions come down to Rabbah, and by the time they make it down here, the men of Jerusalem, under Joab and under Abishai, have crossed the Jordan River, and they have met at Rabbah, and that is where this battle is taking place. Now, the way that this battle is structured is that all of the Syrians are over on the west side of the city, and all of the Ammonites are just outside the city gates in Rabbah. So you've got Ammonites here in the city, and you've got all the Syrians here, and they have closed in and trapped Israel in the middle. Now everybody knows you don't fight a two-front war, but Israel doesn't have a choice. So Joab says to his brother, I'm gonna take the mightiest of men and go fight the Syrians, and you lead the rest of the men and go fight the Ammonites, and we'll go this way and defeat them. The moment the battle starts, the Syrians are pierced with fear that Joab and the mighty men of David are chasing them, that they turn around and they head out, and they head north. So all of these guys who were camped over here, they head north. The moment the Ammonites, who are just outside their own city, see that the Syrians they've just hired are fleeing in fear, they're like, oh, actually, I got, a, I got a pot roast I got to check on. They turn around and they go right back into their city and they shut the gate. And now Israel is standing right outside. No Syrians over here. Ammonites are in their city. And Joab's like, hey, look what the Lord saw fit to do. And they go home. So all of Israel heads back to Jerusalem. But on their way back to Jerusalem, the Syrians... They're talking, I can't believe we needed more man. We could have whipped them. I can't. They start talking and puffing themselves up and the message gets back to the king of Syria. Hey, we need more men. And so he rallies men from north of the Euphrates, which is like right around up here. And so more men from up here, they come down, meet these guys who were cowards and they already retreated and they meet back up here at Helam. So now they're all banging their swords against their shields. Man, we're ready for war. We got more guys. We're going to take care of some business. And David hears of it. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go this time. The Lord is with me. I'm going to bring some victory. So David and all of Israel, who had just fought over here at Rabbah, they head out from Jerusalem up north and meet these guys and heal them. And guess what happens? They stomp some Syrians. 
They stomp them so bad they kill 40,000 horsemen, 700 chariots. Even the commander of the Syrian, Shobach, he dies. Now, why are we seeing all this? Why is this important? Because the author is making a point. Since 2 Samuel 5, we've got nothing but victories. Every time David goes out to the battlefield, it's victory after victory after victory. God is with David. He wants you to see a blessed David. He wants you to see a victorious David. He wants you to see a David that's almost got the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold because God is with him. But why? Why does the author want you to see this? Why is this point being driven home over and over and over because of what comes next? Because David was blessed. But not because David was particularly smart or good looking or charismatic. He was blessed, he was generous, he was victorious because God was with him. David wouldn't have won those battles on his own. He wouldn't have conquered Goliath unless God had sent an angel to come right behind that rock and just pick up the speed a little bit just to drive it into his forehead and hit the ground. David would have never survived the years in the wilderness against Saul unless God was with him. David would have never had all the victories he had, all the spoils of the battle that he had. He would have never had all those wives and all those children and that massive castle if it wasn't for the Lord. And David knew that and that's why God kept blessing him because David's eyes were on God. But all of that stuff has a way of piling up to the point where sometimes that's all you see. And eventually the stuff that he's blessed you with, that's the only stuff you're looking at. And you stop looking at the giver and all you do is fix your eyes on his gifts. And you can't see over it because you don't have the right posture. You're sitting right in the middle of it, surrounded by this, and you start saying like David, man, if I have all of this, I've had all these victories, what couldn't I have? If God says yes to everything I ask of him, man, I, I wanted to build a house for him. He said, he's gonna, no, he's going to build a house for me. Like, who am I? Look at everything he's done for me. What wouldn't he do for me? What, he could, what, what would he say no to? This is why the author is arranging the story this way. Because he wants us to see David completely blessed by God, but being completely overwhelmed by those blessings and coming to a place where he finally starts saying, well, I have all of this, but, but I want more. I, I, don't, I don't want just what God has. Now I... I want what I want. I, there are things I, I don't have. Now I want that too. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, wh where are you getting this from? Where, wh how do you know what was in David's heart? How do you know that this is the issue that leads to this great travesty in chapter 11? Unfortunately, it's not explored until 2 Samuel 12, so you have to wait till next week. But all of this is based off of what the prophet Nathan says when he comes to David. He says, David, I've got a parable for you. There was this man who had everything except for this one sheep that didn't belong to him. 
He had everything. And there was this one man who had nothing. He just had one little sheep. And this man who had everything wanted that one thing that he didn't have. And David's furious. Who is this man? And Nathan says, you are that man. That's how we know what the issue in 11 is before we get to 12. Because David is surrounded by God's blessings, but it's starting to blind him. So let's go to the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So that's why these two chapters are connected. The reason why David's at home and his army is away is because winter came, they stopped fighting. When spring came forth, he sent his men out to go whip up on some more Ammonites. He stayed home, sent his army out. David remained at Jerusalem, the end of verse one. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, hey, how is Joab doing? How are the people doing? And how is the war going? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Take the night, spend some time with your wife. But Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So probably wine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. And he did not go down to his house. And when they told David, uh, hey, Uriah, he didn't do what you said. He didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths meaning they're out in tents. And my Lord, Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back to the battle. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, 
He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Let's pause there. So it's springtime. Israel has gone out to war. David is back at home and he's walking around on his roof and he sees a young woman bathing. She's not just taking a regular bath. There's no joke about her name being Bathsheba. That's just because English, like it's actually like daughter of Bathsheba. She is going through the ceremonial cleansing after going through her menstrual cycle. So she's on her roof cleaning herself, washing herself, bathing ceremoniously, and David is walking around on his roof and he sees her. And he doesn't look away. But he he gazes, he beholds, and he desires her in his heart. There's this thing he doesn't have. Now he's got lots of wives. There's, he's not at want for anything, but there's something that his flesh desires. He wants that beautiful woman. So then we're told that he sends for her. Give me some information on this girl. And we're told that she is the daughter of one of his mighty men, Elam. We find that out in 2 Samuel 23, 34, when we're, In 2 Samuel 23, when all of the uh, mighty men of David are listed, her dad was one of David's mighty men. But beyond that, we're told in 2 Samuel 16 that her grandfather was one of David's most trusted advisors. Okay, so she comes from good stock. Her her dad fights in my my army. Her her grandfather's one of my most trusted advisors. She's not a nobody. But then there's one one other thing, David. Um, She is married. She's married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. And we find out in 2 Samuel 23, 39, Uriah the Hittite was also one of David's mighty men. So this isn't just a nobody. It's not just a gal on a roof available. This is a girl who her family is deeply tied into the Davidic dynasty, connected to the family, and her husband fights for David's honor. She belongs to somebody. So at this point, of course, hands off, man, right? She's she's married to somebody else. No, wrong, not hands off. The desire inside of David grows even more, and what happens next is a series of cold commands, just verbs, void of any relationship. We're told in verse four, David sent the messengers, so he sent, he took, she came, he lay with her, and then he sent her away. No mention of her name, no mention of a conversation. This is completely out of the flesh. And then we see David sending for her husband, sending him to be home with his wife. David's commanding this, he's commanding that. There's no comment about David or about Bathsheba's perspective. We don't know if she was complicit. We don't know if she liked the idea that the king was interested in her. We don't know if she resisted. 
There's no comment about Uriah, whether he comes in and David says, hey man, how are things going? And he's like, a messenger could have told you how things are going. Why did you send one of your mightiest men to come tell you how things are going? There's no inference on what Uriah knows or doesn't know because the author wants you focused, laser focused on one thing. Not the conditions of the sin, not what somebody may have been okay with or, or, or Bathsheba's state of mind or, or Uriah. Was he a good husband or was he a bad? Was he checked out when he came home? Did he really love her? Is David doing Bathsheba a favor because she was in an empty marriage? And none of that. None of those details come into focus because the author wants you focused on one thing, one thing only, David's sin. And standing exactly opposite of David and his sin is Uriah and his virtue. The storytelling is masterful. You've got David standing here in his sin and you've got Uriah the Hittite standing here in virtue. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but Uriah the Hittite, not Uriah the Jew. Uriah's not Jewish. The Hittites are a completely different tribe. Uriah has left his own family. Uriah is a Gentile. He left his people and came to serve David and Yahweh. He has converted, but he's still Uriah the Hittite. And now you've got David the Jew, the king of God's people, standing opposite of Uriah, this Gentile. And the Gentile is giving us a more virtuous example of what it looks like to stand in God's ways than the, own per, than, than the person who is supposed to be king over God's people modeling those ways for his people. The picture, you can't read this too fast because you know it and you're familiar with it and miss what's happening here. This picture, this, this opposite picture is drawing our attention because, because you've got David who has everything and you've got Uriah who has nothing. But here's the fascinating part. David used to be a man who had nothing. And he should have known better. He knew what it was like to be a man who had nothing. And now he has everything. And he's taking the one thing that this man who has nothing has. This is so much bigger than just adultery. This drives to the very heart of human desire and how it clouds our very judgment to the point where you start arguing your own case against the God who created the heavens. Look at what you've done for me. Look at all you've blessed me with, but, but I want more. I want what you haven't given me. You've given me so much and you've blessed me so much and I'm so grateful, but I want more. I want the things that you haven't given me. I want the things that you've given other people too. Is that not what our entire social media culture is based off of? The idea that we, we, we further this, this feeding of a desire in our own selves that it doesn't matter what you have, it's never enough. You just bought something expensive, but you gotta start also saving for next year because that thing you just bought 
will be obsolete. This story drives at the heart of our humanity, our own desires, that it doesn't matter what God has blessed us with, it doesn't matter where he's put you, where in time he's placed you, man, the grass is always greener. Man, if I was born 100 years ago, that would've been so much better than the world we're living in today. No, it wouldn't. You'd be miserable 100 years ago. All you do is complain about how hot it is. And no air conditioner back then. <laughs> the idea that if we could just change our own circumstances, remodel our own situation, tell God you got it wrong in these two areas and I'm gonna make it right. <sighs> and what gives us that sense of entitlement is the crowns we make for each other. The crowns we make for ourselves, these little, these, these little paper mache things with these fake rubies on them, we put on our heads, look what I'm ruling, what could I have got, look at all the stuff I've built. You haven't built nothing. Every ounce of energy in your soul was given to you. God breathed into you everything you have, he's given you. Those gifts that you use to, to mount up that treasure like Scrooge McDuck so you just take a dive into it every afternoon. Guess who gave you the breath in those lungs, the gifts to go get that stuff, to, to be successful in business. God gave you that stuff, not you. But your desires deceive you. You start looking around all the stuff and you can't see past the stuff and you start forgetting where the stuff came from. And then you go just a step further and, and you, don't, you don't just appreciate the stuff, you worship the stuff. And the thing about worshiping stuff is that the moment you start that, it's never enough. There's no end game to that because the appetite only grows and it doesn't matter how much you have, you've gotta get more. And you start compromising on how you get that more because God says, nope, I've drawn a line, you have enough, no more. And you say, who are you to tell me no? okay, God, I honor you in the no, but I am gonna go around this way and I'm gonna get this one thing that I want and I'll repent about it later. I know you don't want me to have this, but I'm gonna do it. You start rationalizing, I'm in a bad marriage, I've got, I'm in a bad job, I, I, I can't afford these things, there, there's taxes piling up. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you always have a way of rationalizing it and making it seem like you're the victim and you're the bad guy. But at its heart, that's not really the issue, is it? What's really the issue is that you want more. And you're trying to find a good or godly way to argue your case that what you have is not enough. You're not content. Your desires have grown beyond you. You're not looking at your heavenly Father and saying, I know and I trust that you know what I need. And I don't need to go beyond that. If you see fit to entrust that with me, I'll handle it as a shepherd. But that's not how we live. We look at him and we say, mm, but there are a few, th like, thank you so much for all the blessings, thank you. But there are a few things that I do want. Little me, little me time. Little me, little me things, little self-care stuff. Right, I'm gonna put a little money aside just for me, just for me stuff. Stuff will eat you alive. 
And the problem is that the, and society's encouraging you. They're cheering you on. They're waving, they're waving pom-poms. Yeah, come on. You, you, you. Worship you. Yes. Just set, up, set more aside for you. You need more you time. Stop thinking about every so, everybody so much. Think about you. <sighs> Stuff will eat you alive. It'll eat you alive like a cancer from the inside. And that's what was happening to David. He was king. God blessed him and he looked across his kingdom and he said, man, what, 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 what wouldn't I, what, what shouldn't I have? I, I'm king, I'm, I'm entitled to a little kingly time. I'm the king, if I see this beautiful woman, who's gonna tell me I can't have that? You're gonna find out in chapter 12 who tells you you can't have that, David. But we're not there yet. We're still, the author is still trying to get us to see the weight of what David is doing because it's, it, it's not, it, it seems bad now, but it even gets worse. Let's continue in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. But he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And then he will probably quote Judges 9.53. Don't you remember the story of Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? This is what you say. When the king starts complaining about our tactics, here's what you say. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate and then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, well thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now this section I, I absolutely love because the way the author has arranged it, there is, it is a, a complete um, exposure of the hypocrisy of sin, right? So you've got the messenger, Joab telling the messenger, hey, um, David, he really cares about unnecessary bloodshed. So when you go and you deliver the message, he's probably gonna be upset. Why were you all boys so close to the wall? Don't you know that somebody's gonna just shoot arrows down at you? 
That was stupid. What are you doing? David cares about his men, and he's probably going to bring this up. David doesn't care about his men. David wrote Uriah's death warrant and then sealed it and sent it to the commander via Uriah. You've got the messenger giving the news to David and David's response. You know what? Yeah, the sword devours one. He devours another. (laughs) What are you going to (laughs) do? You know, just another day in battle, collateral damage and all. Except that's not what happened. David ordered the sword to take a very specific man. The irony of David acting generous to Uriah. Man, why don't you spend the night with your wife? But he isn't, he's not generous. He isn't generous. He's not doing it because he really loves Uriah and his wife. He's doing it because he really loves his wife, not Uriah. And he's trying to cover his own sin. The hypocrisy strikes us here because in verse 27, all the hypocrisy echoes the last sentence of that verse. In the midst of all the hypocrisy, the Lord shows up and he gives what he thinks about the matter. And the Lord is displeased. So in one chapter, we go from David, the man of justice and equity, to David, the man of bloodshed. David, the victorious and generous warrior, to David, the corrupt and selfish warrior. You remember where we started in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12? All of this was written for your instruction, so take heed lest you fall. This story resides in God's word because in a way, we are all like David's who get so enamored with the good, generous things that God has given us that we just take them for granted. That we stop looking at our wife as a gift from God That we stop looking at our children as a gift from God, but we start looking at our wife as something that's in the way of me getting my own way. I can't have what I want because she said no. Or vice vice versa. The wife says, I've got all these things I want to accomplish, but I can't because I'm in this loveless marriage. Or these kids, they're like, man, like, Ah, I thought it was a good idea, but now all they do is backtalk me and like, I can't stand listening to them. All they do is complain and, and now I'm just a fairy service, taking them here and taking them there. I don't get to have my own life. I wish I could do my own things. There's so many things in life I want, but I can't because my kids. Oh God, I've heard this so many times. You know what this comes from? It comes from the same thing that David struggled with. You think this is different. You look at this and you're like, well, I'm not a king. I don't have a castle. Yeah, but you do, don't you? You do, if you think about it. You do have people who are following you. You do have people that you're leading. What direction are you leading them in? Here's the reality. Take heed lest you fall. You are one selfish decision away from ruining your marriage. I'll tell you this because I love you, but here's the truth. That affair you have been entertaining and you have convinced yourself, I don't care what the Bible says about it. I don't care what my pastor says about it. I don't care what the church says. I want what I want. That's gonna ruin your life. And you're one bad decision away. Take heed, 
lest you fall. You look at these, well, I'm not like David. The decisions I'm making, the, 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 it's not the same stakes. Oh, they are the same stakes. Because you are one selfish decision away from completely shipwrecking your faith. Hear me. That's what's on the line. This isn't, well, this stuff matters, so I won't do that stuff. And this stuff, ah, doesn't really matter. The reason why you say this stuff over here that you've been rationalizing doesn't matter the reason why you say that is because deep in your heart, you desire those things. I have started in premarital counseling making a point to give the secret to a happy marriage to every couple I uh, uh, have counseling with. And if I, was un- if I wasn't able to do your premarital counseling, I'm sorry, and you don't know the secret, but I'm gonna give it to you today for free. Are you ready? Here's the secret to a healthy, happy marriage. And and if you do this, marriage is not even gonna feel like work. It's gonna feel like it's easy. Like it's the most easy thing that you've ever done, the greatest thing you've ever done. Are you ready? Here's how you have the greatest marriage you've ever had. Get rid of all of your desires. That's it. Empty yourself. I tell every couple, I said, look, what you're doing is you come together and you stand before a holy God. Here's what you're saying. You're saying for the rest of my life, I agree to trade all of my desires for your desires. And you agree to trade all of your desires for my desires. So both of us, our needs are being met, but not through selfishness, through servanthood. That's marriage. That's the beauty of it. And if both people are on the same page, marriage is amazing. But every single time it's not. Every counseling session I've ever been to, things aren't going well. You give me three minutes and I'll get to the bottom of why it's not going well. And I guarantee you it is selfish desires. Somebody wants something for themselves. That's always what it is. That's how it started in the garden. The, temp- the temptation to Adam and Eve. Look at all the things God has blessed you with. But there's one thing he won't let you have. Don't you want that one thing you don't have? All these things he has given you, but isn't there one thing that you don't have that you, that you want? All of us struggle with the same thing David struggles with, and that's why we have to take heed lest we fall. Because we are one wrong look at the blessings God has given us to turn that thing into an idol. You sit there and, you, you, and, and I'm just gonna be honest, like God does bless his people. Now there's an entire corrupt wing of the church that's all about prosperity gospel. And it, and it says, look, it, like, if you do these things for God, God's gonna bless you. He's got to, it's in his word. Like, that's garbage. That's nonsense, all right? God is not your errand boy. You're not gonna get him to do anything for you. But we have seen through scripture in numerous places, God blesses his people. He loves his people. He doesn't bless you in the way that you think. He blesses you in in peace and on prosperity. He gives you a a peace that surpasses all understanding. The only only place that's coming from is from God. But he also, he does bless his people financially sometimes. That is a thing he does. He is in the business of that. But it is not a measure of whether you are blessed or not because he blesses his people in hundreds of ways. The point is when you stand back and you look at all of the things that God has blessed you with, and you start fixing your mind and your eye on those things rather than on him, they turn into an idol. And the thing about idols is that their appetite is never satisfied. 
they always want more. You got peace, you start worshiping peace, now you want more peace. Now you start cutting people off from your life. Now you start getting out of community because community is the source of your stress. God has blessed me with peace, but I want more peace. And the only way to do that is to get rid of people. Oh, you're running in the wrong direction. You see how tricky that gets? God has blessed us with all these, but mm, I want more. Why do you want more? Because those things are a desire inside of my heart. Now this is, this is the bad news, this is the truth, that this, this, this issue that David is struggling with right now is an issue that all of us are struggling with right now on a daily basis. There's not a person in this room who does not struggle with inner desires you have not put to death. That's all of us. Now where that, where that falls and what it looks like, lots of different things. But the idea that, that we would sit back and we would say like, look at what God has blessed that family. I want what they have. Well maybe, have, thought cross your mind, maybe God doesn't want you to have what they have because you can't handle what they have blessed them with. Maybe this family operates with a level of decency and restraint that if you were blessed with that same stuff, man, you'd just go wild. Next time we'd see you bet in Las Vegas, you gambled everything away. Have you thought about that? And the reason why he blesses you in this area and not that area, because, because he, he knows you better than you know yourself. But all the stuff, and it, it's, 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 a, it's a desire that never stops. It grows, it grows, it grows. It's a reality we have to be confronted with, but I, I have good news. I've got such good news. Pull up 1 Corinthians 10, and let's look at 13 and 14. Remember what I said at the beginning? These are all written down for instructions. Take heed lest you fall. Oh man, there's good news. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, So we put that one on a bumper sticker and we stop. There's a therefore. There's something you gotta do. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Here's the truth. Every person in here struggles with with, with the reality that you have inner desires that are unchecked. Everybody struggles with the sense that as God starts blessing his people, you have an innate ability to start looking at those blessings and not looking at him. You can't get your eyes off of them. There's a, there's a desire inside of you that once that happens, inevitably, you can't stop yourself. I want more, I want more, I want more. My, my closet's filled with this, but I want more. My, my, my house is filled with it, but I want more. My, I've, got, I've got five houses, but I want more. My bank account is full, but I want more. I've got so much peace, but I want more. I've got so much power, but I want more. I'm so gifted in this area, but I want more. I've been given a, a, a little area to oversee and to care for, but it's not big enough. I want more. God, give me more. I want a bigger church. Whatever you've given me, oh, please trust me with more. But you can't handle more. There's good news. Every single time those desires start stirring inside of you, God is faithful, church. You're not left on your own. When those desires start rising up on the inside of you, God is faithful and he provides the way of escape. 
flee. That's your way of escape. So here's the good news. You don't have to sit on the roof and keep staring at the girl bathing. Flee. Run. Run as fast as you possibly can. You don't have to keep staring at everybody else's life on the internet because you're unhappy with your own. Look away. Delete it. That person who at work gives you more attention than your husband and you got his number and you're just going to get lunch, it's no big deal. Delete his number. Flee, run, get off the roof, delete his number, delete apps, get rid of stuff. There is a way of escape and you don't have to stand there and give in to your own temptations. It does require you to flee. So here's the good news, church. Temptation is real and it comes in all shapes and sizes. And one of those shapes and sizes is the temptation that God's blessings morph into idols that want your very soul. But there's good news too. You can flee from it. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.